Okay. Uh, you might note my voice sounds a bit funny, and it's not just because Parramatta destroyed Melbourne on Thursday night, though that was part of it. Uh, I've had a cold, and a, a legit cold, not a COVID, not the flu, a cold, and I'm coming to the end of that, but it has impacted my voice. I'm just telling you all, so if you want to stay 10 feet away from me while I cry leper, that's fine. Um, I'm, I'm just giving you a warning, all right? So I am at the end of it, uh, but doing okay. So uh, can I encourage you to come down to the basin after the service where we're actually going to baptize Reese? Um, there'll be quite a few of us who will stick around for a meal just to hang out together as well. So, you know, if you haven't brought any food along, uh, you know, grab some fish and chips or whatever and just come, come on down to the basin. It'll be a really good time to hang out, so I encourage you to do that as well. All right. I'm not a Christian because of the clothes that I wear. I'm not a Christian because I don't swear. I'm not a Christian because I don't get drunk. I'm not a Christian because I come to church. I'm not a Christian because I tithe money. I'm not even a Christian because I love the Princess Bride movie. I'm not a Christian because I try to be a good person. I'm a Christian because Jesus died for me, paying the penalty of my sin on the cross as my substitute, bearing the anger of the Father at my sin, and he has chosen to give me life in his name that I will live forevermore for the praise of his glory. This and this alone is what makes me and makes you a Christian if you have given your life to Jesus. The word Christian literally translates as little Christ. It was originally given as a derogatory nickname. The early Christians called themselves followers of the way, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. But they got this nickname, Little Christs, because they talked about, worshipped, tried to honour, wouldn't stop talking about Jesus so much that everyone went, you guys just keep trying to be Little Christs. It's like, oh, dang, what a horrible nickname, right? Um, that's what the word Christian means, little Christ. Let me give you an illustration. This is a letter from Pliny the Younger, and it was written in 112 AD. Now, Pliny uh, was a, uh, like a regional director for Rome, uh, and he was wondering what to do with the Christians that kept cropping up. And so he actually wrote to the emperor at the time, this is about 80 years after the death of Jesus, sort of saying, what do you do with Christians? And the emperor wrote back, we can actually read these to sort of say, but what have you learned? So this is what Pliny wrote back. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, but to never commit any fraud, theft or adultery, never to falsify their word, 
nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. After which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. In other words, what were they doing? They were getting together to worship Jesus, to take communion, and to bind themselves to living out their faith in upright lives. Why? Why were they doing that? Because of the cross of Christ. You see, his death and resurrection, the fact that they were now born again as a new life in Christ Jesus, changed everything. It changed who they worshipped, it changed how they worshipped, and it changed how they live. Right? That's the reality of the cross of Christ. Now, you've heard this morning that after two years in the Gospel of John, we have finally hit the crucifixion of Jesus. A story that most of us are familiar with, but we should never, ever take for granted. Not only is it the greatest act of love and sacrifice the world can ever know, it is the sole reason that we are saved. And therefore, we should pay it the utmost respect. If you have a Bible with you, you can open up to John 19, and we're going to read initially 17 through to 18. John 19, 17 through to 18. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Now we finished last week with Pilate out of fear of having been called a traitor to Caesar, condemning Jesus, who he knew was innocent, to death on the cross. From the other gospel accounts, we know that Jesus was then flogged with the worst of the possible Roman floggings, which was a leather whip with many tails, to the ends of which was tied pieces of metal or bone, uh, which would literally strip the flesh from the body. After that, the victims were made to carry the crossbeam only. So they had the crossbeam of the cross, and they would carry that through the city, while the crowds mocked them and humiliated them and spat on them and jeered at them for being the worst of criminals. They'd take that through the city. Once outside the city gate, they would begin to climb the hill to the place of the skull, Golgotha. Jesus carries the crossbeam by himself through to the city gates, where due to blood loss, pain and exhaustion, he collapses. We know from the other Gospels that Simon of Cyrene is ordered to carry the cross piece as Jesus is simply physically incapable at this point. Upon arriving at the place of crucifixion, they would have laid Jesus down, nailed his hands to the cross beam, 
and then they would raise the beam with the body attached up onto the permanently fixed upright vertical piece of wood. That's the way they would go about it. And then nailed his feet. In the ancient world, this most terrible of punishments is always associated with shame and horror. It was so brutal that no Roman citizen could be crucified without the explicit sanction of the emperor himself. That's how brutally it was uh, seen. Completely naked, the victim would hang in the hot sun for hours, even days. To breathe, it was necessary to push with the legs and pull with the arms against the nails to try and keep your chest cavity open, which created terrible muscle spasms which racked the entire body. But if you relaxed, you began to suffocate. The Romans figured out something beautiful they could do. On the cross, there was a little angular piece of wood that you could almost partially sit on to take some of the weight. That's nice, isn't it? Well, it was just enough to give you hope that you could support some of your weight. It was just enough to make you keep fighting so that the agony would last longer. It was a false hope designed to make people keep trying to fight so that the agony would endure and endure. We cannot really overemphasize the horror of the crucifixion, but it's very important that we note that it was not the worst thing that was happening to Jesus. You have to remember that on the cross... He was bearing the sins of all who would believe, bearing our guilt, bearing our shame, our rejection of God. He was bearing the wrath of the Father, and the Father turns his face away from his eternal Son. What is spiritually happening on the cross far outstrips the physical pain of the cross. As horrific as I might be able to spell this out to you, the staining of the radiant and holy, pure Son of God with your sin and mine is far worse. All four of the Gospels mention that Jesus was crucified between two others. They were most likely revolutionaries, guerrilla fighters who had tried to rise up against Rome. The very crime which Jesus had been accused of, been found innocent of. And we know that one of the two will put his trust in Christ and be saved. But think about this. On the cross, Jesus is being tortured despite being found innocent of being a revolutionary. On the cross, Jesus, being innocent, is paying the penalty of the sin of a revolutionary who is hanging beside him. Such is the love and grace of God in Christ Jesus. But on the cross, he was paying for your sin, for your rebellion against God.
This is the reality of the cross of Christ. That it was your sin that put him on the cross. And it was your sin that creates the true horror of the crucifixion. And so we read on in verses 19 to 22. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. Now for those who have been here, and if you haven't been here, what we've seen over the last little while in the trial of Jesus was a power battle that went on between Pilate and the Jewish leadership. They wanted Jesus executed because they saw Jesus as a threat to their power and prestige and they had brought Jesus initially on trumped up charges of sedition of being a revolutionary claiming that he was a king who was a threat to Rome. Now if you remember cast your mind back Pilate did not like being manipulated and so Pilate threw back and said well why don't you go and crucify him and they had to say We don't have the authority to crucify him, only you do. So Pilate kind of put them back in their place. Then Pilate, if you remember, refused to actually do it. And so they then accused Pilate of what? Of not being a friend of Caesar's, of supporting a potential threat to Rome. And that is why in the end Jesus is being crucified, because Pilate is worried about the accusation that might be brought against him. So Pilate has been forced to do the Jewish wishes despite what he would have wanted. Well, here's his last chance to have the final say. Here's Pilate's opportunity to have one over them again. On every cross, there was a sign that would declare the crimes of the guilty. And this, of course, was a way for Rome to dissuade others. You think about it. If you went up there and saw someone lasting for three days in the agony of the cross and above on their head it said, this person rebelled against Rome, it was a pretty good way of telling you, don't rebel against Rome. Right? So they would put the crimes up there as a way of telling people, this is what happens to lawbreakers. On Jesus' cross it declared, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It was written in three languages. Latin was the language of Roman military. Greek was the common language of the people of the day. And Aramaic was in common common use in the Jewish people. In other words, in those three languages, it covers all people. And we have Jesus, the King of the Jews. It's a last dig from Pilate that they had a king and he was now being crucified by the might of Rome. You can see how much it annoys the Jews with the fact they come to Pilate and what did they say? Well, 
he's not actually our king. Can you just change the sign to say, he said he was our king. And what does Pilate say? I've written what I've written. I mean, seriously, has anyone here ever got a dodgy name in the workplace, nickname in the workplace? The last thing you do to get rid of a dodgy nickname is blow up about it. That just guarantees it's locked in, right? The moment you, you, get, you make a big deal out of it, that name sticks forevermore. Pilate here has had the dead set last go at them, and they come up and complain about it. And if Pilate had have had the ability to create a neon sign back then to say Jesus is king of the Jews, he would have done it. Right? That is the little clash that's going on, and we just see the kind of final moment of it here when Pilate is having a last dig at the Jews. Unwittingly, though, Pilate, at the crucifixion of the Son of God, at the moment that Jesus is going to pay the penalty of our sin, Pilate has announced to the world who Jesus really is. Remember what I said? The three key languages of the day that everyone could read declared that Jesus is the king. Think of passages like, you know, I could have gone to a million of these, but this is Psalm 96. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the people fairly. Say among the nations, tell the nations. And what is Pilate doing right at this crucial point? He's declaring to the nations that the Lord, the King, judges fairly by pouring out judgment on God's Son. We are reminded again and again that Jesus' death and resurrection is not an accident. Jesus is not on the cross by Pilate. Jesus is not on the cross because of Jewish leadership. Jesus is on the cross because of the hand of the Father who sent the Son to pay the penalty of your sin so that you could be set free from its guilt and have life eternal evermore for the praise of his glory. Amen? That is why Jesus is on the cross. It's Father's Day today. What father would send his only son to pay the penalty of the sin of the people who hated him? This is why the Father gets the glory today. That he would send the Son to die in our place. That is the miracle of the cross. If you were there that day, if you were in front of those crosses, and you paused and read the sign, would you have recognized that it was your sin that held him there? Would you recognize that he was not just king of the Jews, but that he was your king as well? Do you recognize that this morning? That Jesus was on that cross to pay for your sin. And that only by accepting the death and resurrection of Jesus can you be saved. Many saw him that day and mocked him. The scriptures tell us that they ridiculed and made jokes of him. 
Don't do the same. Come to new life. Like Reese has. Like so many others here have. Be born again by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And know for sure that your sins were paid for by Christ. And that you can have life forevermore on the basis of what he has done. That is the good news. Verses 23 to 24, we read, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots of it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, They divided my clothes among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. All right, I want you to really pause and focus here for a second. I'm about to do some maths. Everyone, who's great at maths? I like that. There's a couple confident hands going up. Who is atrocious at maths? Yeah, you're my people, all right? You should look around and see the ones who are really good and just talk to them in the future when you need help, like, which is me all the time. All right, Jesus, from everything we've studied and if we put every document together, was probably crucified in April of 33 AD. As far as we know, Jesus was crucified in April of 33 AD. 600 years before that, the Persians invented the form of torture to death known as crucifixion. So the invention of crucifixion comes about about 600 years before the death of Christ by crucifixion. Let's go back in time another 400 years before that, before the invention of crucifixion, and we get to the approximate time of the writing of Psalm 22, which is what is quoted here in this passage. Right? So Psalm 22 is what's quoted here. They divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots of my clothing. was written 400 years before crucifixion was invented and another 600 years before we get to the cross of Christ. Let me read to you just a few verses out of Psalm 22. Uh, sorry, Sean, but I've just pulled a few verses out, so it's going to be impossible for you to chuck it up there. All right, here's some verses from Psalm 22. Let me know if anything sounds familiar. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance? Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him, since he takes pleasure in him. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. A thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus, the psalmist wrote Psalm 22. What does it tell you, church? It tells you that Jesus was crucified by the definite plan 
purpose of God to pay the penalty of your sin so that you could come to the Father forevermore. Right? A thousand years before crucifixion was invented, a thousand years before the Roman soldiers cast lots for his clothing, the psalmist wrote it here. You know, for Jesus to have somehow tried to uh, rig this so that they would all fulfill this, he would have had to have had the Roman authorities on board. Try and make that happen. It was C.S. Lewis that first posited the idea that when it comes to Jesus, you really only have three options in what to do with him. The first one is you can decide that he was a liar. That when he said he was God, when he claimed he was the only way to the Father, he was a liar. To hold that view, you have to believe that he lived the way he lived for that lie, endured death for that lie, that his disciples went to death for that lie, and the Romans supported him for that lie, and the 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection supported him for that lie, even though it led to some of their deaths as well. Right? It simply gets ridiculous to think that all of this was a lie that people were then died for. So C.S. Lewis says, if you think he was a liar, you're in trouble. He says, maybe he wasn't a liar, maybe he was a lunatic. That's why he was prepared to die, because he was off his rocker. And all of his disciples were as well. Now, apart from needing to believe that so many of these people were all so delusional, does anything about... The raving, the work, sorry, the words of Christ seem like the ravings of a lunatic? Does anything about his conduct seem like someone who's completely off their rocker? Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. The Sermon on the Mount. Now, in the words of Jesus, we have the most incredibly clear voice of sanity you can imagine, with even non-Christians at least having to affirm that he was a great moral teacher. He's anything but a lunatic. So if he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, you're only left with one other option. He is Lord. That what he said was true, that he was God in the flesh, and that he went to the cross to pay the penalty of your sin. And that by trusting in him, you can have life forevermore. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Which one do you hold? You've got to hold the one. 25 to 27, to finish off our passage this morning. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to his disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Jesus went to the cross alone to pay the penalty of our sin. Jesus alone could do this. We do have ancient records, though, that tell us during a crucifixion, family and friends could come and go. They could visit and witness the agony for a while until it was too much to bear and then perhaps go away to recover before coming back to try and once again 
offer some comfort to the person in agony. And so at this stage, we have a group of women near Jesus under the watch, of course, of Roman guards, and at least John the Apostle is there as well. Now, John often refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. Do you think this was a brag point for John? A way to lift himself up above the other apostles? Or as John wrote his account, did he simply sit back and think about what is significant about me? What would I like to be known as forevermore? And all he could say is that Jesus loved me. Right? I think that's what John's writing. Simply that. That's all I've got to offer is that I'm loved by Jesus. And then in a touching, beautiful moment, Jesus in the agony of the cross makes sure that his mum will be provided for, handing her to the care of John. Jesus has younger brothers, half-brothers, who rightly should have had this role, but we know initially they were not accepting of Jesus' claim to be God, and they lived in Capernaum, So Jesus makes sure that Mary will be supported. All people are born in rebellion against God. You may not realize it, but all people have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of themselves. No one is good enough to reach God's standard. No one is a good enough bloke to reach God's standard because his standard is perfection. For failing to meet God's standard, the penalty is the fires of hell. But God sent Jesus to take the penalty of your sin, that by believing in Christ you would have life forevermore. This is the good news. The horror of the cross is always coupled with the joy of the love of God that sent Jesus to die in your place. If you put your trust in the cross of Christ, you can have life eternal because of what he did. That's the promise of the good news. Let's pray. Lord, we simply thank you for your word. Lord, we praise you that while we were yet your enemies, Jesus died for us. Lord, I pray for each person here, each person who listens, Lord. They would get on their knees, surrender this life, give their life to Jesus and receive the forgiveness and peace that comes from knowing your sin has been paid, the penalty of the Father's wrath has been cancelled, has been poured out on Christ and that we have life in his name forevermore. Lord, I pray that we would not discard the cross of Christ for it is the only way to the Father. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.